Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Hello, and welcome to the Forum at the Harvard School of Public Health. I'm Abigail Trafford, your moderator. I'm a journalist and an author. And I want to wish everybody a happy International Women's Day today. And so it's very fitting that today we are going to talk about mammography screening. The title is Mammograms, Who in the World Are They For? My panelists are Dr. Meta Callagher, researcher and lead author of the New England Journal of Medicine article offering a new assessment of mammography's effectiveness in reducing death rates. She's also a surgeon at the Oslo University Hospital and a visiting scientist at the Harvard School of Public Health. We have Felicia Knoll. She is, sorry, Felicia Knoll. She is director of the Harvard Global Equity Initiative and she's leader of the Global Task Force on Expanded Access to Cancer Care and Control in Developing Countries. Next to her is uh, Dr. Flavia Bustera. Uh, Assistant Director General of the World Health Organization and in charge of family and community health. And from Seattle, we have Dr. Julie Graylow. She is Professor and Director, Breast Medical Oncology, University of Washington, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. She's an associate member of the Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Institute. And how we're going to proceed is that each panelist is going to talk for three minutes about their work. And then I'm going to ask a few questions, and we're going to talk among ourselves, and we're going to get the conversation going, and then I'm going to turn it to all of you, and we'll have questions. And this is a very important topic. Mammograms, who in the world are they for? So let's turn to you, Meta. Yes. Uh, we published a study uh, this fall in the New England Journal of Medicine where we assessed uh, uh, the Norwegian Breast Cancer Screenings Program um, uh, uh, reduction in mortality from breast cancer. And uh, the program started in 1996 uh, and it was rolled out in a staggered fashion. So we were able to uh, have two groups of women with uh, those who lived in counties where the program was established and the, and the control group of women living in counties where you didn't have mammography screening. And uh, the screening program uh, offers mammography screening to women aged 50 to 69 years old uh, every second year. But uh, in addition to that, in order to be a, a part of the program, each county had to reorganize uh, the um, care for breast cancer uh, in each hospital. So they established breast units and multidisciplinary teams. And uh, we compared then the groups of women who were offered mammography screening with the groups who were not offered mammography screening through the period 1986 to 2005. And what we found is that we found a reduction in mortality from breast cancer among those in the screening group, 30%. However, we also found that reduction in mortality in those counties where the program wasn't implemented was 20%. So the difference between these two groups is really the screening program, and that was only 10%. Mm -hmm. So a 10% reduction in mortality from breast cancer in the age groups 50 to 69 years old. But further, we also found an 8% reduction in mortality from breast cancer among the women aged 70 to 84 years old, they were not offered mammography screening. However, mm -hmm. they were taken care of by these multidisciplinary teams and the breast units. And the multidisciplinary teams are uh, doctors, specialized doctors, uh, um, radiologists, pathologists, surgeons, and oncologists meeting every week discussing every single patient admitted to the hospital, regardless of age. So we think the 8% reduction could be explained by introduction of this reorganized breast mm -hmm. uh, care. So 10% is significantly less than what we anticipated and has previous, previously been found 
the U.S. Uh, US uh, Preventive Service Task Force estimated the reduction in mortality from breast cancer in the age group 50 to 69 to be 15 to 23 percent. And we found 10 percent reduction in mortality. It's really important that this is about screening. Yes. It's not diagnosis. That we're just talking about screening uh, asymptomatic healthy women exactly. uh, for, for breast cancer. Yes. And we're talking about uh, Nor yes, yes. Yes, so it's Norway. It's, it's Norway. A, it's a Western <laughs> world, and we have a um, public health care system. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, also, I, I, just, I just want you also to remember that uh, the goal of mammography screening is to detect breast cancer at an early curable stage. However, if you don't have the facilities to cure people, there is no need to screen for, uh, for breast cancer. Now let's turn to uh, other parts of the world, and I want to turn to you, Felicia. Uh, please give us your work and how, how, how you look at mammography screening in low-income countries. Thank you, Abby, and for the opportunity to be here today on International Women's Day. Um, I have to say, and I certainly hope, that mammography worked for me. So I was diagnosed with breast cancer three and a half years ago in my first baseline mammogram at age 41 in a small clinic by a technician in Cuernavaca, Morelos. And if anything saved my life, in mm -hmm. addition to Julie, mm -hmm. it is that mammogram that was recommended by my friend and gynecologist who said we're going to apply the standard guidelines and suggest that as of age 40, you start having your mammograms. That's the anecdote. I think the question, Abby, is what's the evidence here? Mm -hmm. I actually think that in reading Mathilde's study and going over the editorials that were published in the New England Journal along with that study, what we're actually seeing is that countries like Norway, as Julio Frank would say, are in fact victims of their own success. Mm -hmm. What we seem to be seeing, and this I think has not been pushed forward enough, is that the results are actually suggesting that perhaps at the beginning, at lower levels of income, when you have a large mass of undetected cases, when awareness can be promoted, mm -hmm. there can truly be a very large effect, larger than what we're seeing years later, after many years of work in a country like Norway. <coughs> we have a tremendous difference between the high-income countries and the low-income countries. Mm -hmm. I reviewed the figures from Global Can from YARC for just 2008, published only mm -hmm. last year. Mm -hmm. And I looked at Norway versus the lowest income countries. And the lethality rates, the simple ratio of mortality to incidence. It's 14% if we look at those simple data for Norway. And it is between 48 and 55%. So the probability of survival is, is just tremendously different. What we are seeing, I think, all over uh, lower and middle income countries is a disease that seems to be quite different perhaps because of the disease itself, mm -hmm. but perhaps because of the structure of population, the education of women, and the way that the health system works. Mm -hmm. We do know that mm -hmm. going against what we see from the data, a much, much larger proportion of young women with breast cancer in developing countries. It is 55% below the age of 54, compared to about 30-something percent, mm -hmm. the low 30s, in high-income countries. The differentials in age of death are even more upsetting, and those perhaps are a series of different reasons. The question we have to ask, I think, in developing countries, and we don't really know the answer for this, we're about to start actually a mm -hmm. global study on this, is why are we seeing so many young mm -hmm. women with mm -hmm. breast cancer? It may be demographics. Mm -hmm. If it is demographics, that doesn't change the reality for the policymaker today. Mm -hmm. What it's saying is that you have a lot mm -hmm. of young women with breast cancers that are terribly aggressive, very likely to kill them. We've seen in Mexico, I think, an unfortunate fallout of the recommendations, in fact, mm -hmm. in the United States that weren't accepted in the United States by many to change the age and mammography. The existing norm and recommendation, what we would desire for mm -hmm. Mexican women, is the current norm, 2002, which suggests mammogram at age 40. There's now a tremendous debate to increase the age to 50 and every two years. And this is in the only country, the only developing country mm -hmm. in the world where every woman detected with breast cancer has the right 
to complete financial protection, health insurance for all, to get the same treatment that I did without having to pay for it. It makes very little sense to be under-investing in early detection, where we know we have so many young women, and over-investing in treatment that won't necessarily save their lives, and we know that it could have. The logic seems to be missing, speaking as an economist, but also as a patient. Finally, the last point is that when we speak to women about why they don't explore their own bodies, why they don't insist on breast clinical exams, why they don't go for mammography in developing countries, it's terror. The terror of being maimed by mastectomy, the terror of an amputation, the terror of being abandoned by their husbands or partners, the terror of what they don't, and the surety, they're absolutely sure that they'll die of the disease. It doesn't seem to make any sense to then put on another barrier. We have enough barriers. I think we have to try to pull all those barriers down. Thank you. Yes. Well, this is a very good segue to you, Flavia. Let's talk about your work and, and the, uh, how you look at it from the UN. Sorry, from the World Health Organization. So the World Health Organization is uh, advises country on the policy that they are most beneficial based on the level of disease and burden that they have. And as you have heard from the two uh, previous speakers, the situation across the world varies enormously, both in terms of the frequency and the incidence of uh, breast cancer, but also most most importantly, as Felicia mentioned, in terms of the capacity that countries have to respond to this burden. And uh, as we discuss the issue of mammography and who is it good for, I like to start our discussion by positioning that this is one of the health problems that affect women in the world. And in fact, if we look across the world as we speak today, a thousand women will die by giving birth. So we need to. Uh, understand the investment we are making in women's health and the investment that can in fact pay off and the capacity that country have to make those investments. So from the World Health Organization, we currently have recommendation to program manager for breast cancer to actually uh, have mammography at the age of 50 every two years. And that was based in 2006 on the evidence that was available. As you understood, this is a field where evidence is changing and what we do normally is we bring together the scientists and the uh, results of this evidence and then we periodically update. So we will be looking at updating these guidelines over the next year because most notably what we also need to say is that data and research from the low-income country is very lacking. There is quite a number of research and Meta has mm -hmm. alluded to the very notable study she has conducted but there is quite a significant number of studies that were conducted in the northern part of the world. But for, we do not have the same level of evidence when it comes to countries in sub-Saharan Africa and in Asia. And therefore, creating islands is quite complex, as you may imagine. Thank you so much. I would turn to you, Julie. You tell us a little bit about your work. I thought I would review the uh, breast health global initiative guidelines on which I've been a collaborator, not a, a main driver, but for discussion purposes. And I'll start out by saying I, I agree with everyone that the, uh, the benefits, the gains we've had in the United States and in Western Europe with respect to survival of breast cancer have really been both the earlier detection as well as better treatment. And mm -hmm. I think that's some of what, what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. So the Breast Health Global Initiative has established some guidelines uh, for health care in low and middle income countries. And this is trying to be evidence-based, but also expert opinion and you know, culturally sensitive. The Breast Health Global Initiative has categories of prevention, early detection, diagnosis, and treatment. And within early detection, the topic today, there are four levels that are suggested. The first is a basic level, then a limited level, then an enhanced level, and then a maximal level. We hope we in the U.S. are at a maximal level, although uh, I'm not always sure, certainly not a lot of our population. So at the basic level, the Breast Health Global Initiative suggests um, that the bulk of detection is going to be done by clinical history and good clinical breast exam. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so creating some culturally sensitive education for the public and really putting efforts into the training of healthcare providers in terms of doing clinical breast exam and educating their patients. That's 
what should be focused on. Now, as the country's ready to move up to the next step in early detection, the limited step, here you want to start looking at diagnostic ultrasound and mammography. So for women with symptoms or a positive clinical breast exam, you have the capability of performing these tests. You're not doing screening, and you might do a first set of pilot projects on screening mammography in a target population, such as maybe women at the highest risk. So you're, you're getting ready for the screening mammography, gearing up to be able to do, for example, the biopsies that you can't feel, you can only find on mammography. Moving to the next level, the enhanced level, this is where you start doing routine screening mammography in addition to the clinical breast exam and the education of the healthcare providers and the public. And currently in the Breast Health Global Initiative, the screening is recommended approximately every two years from 50 to 69, and then consideration of screening from 40 to 49. And if you do it in that age group, it's suggested that there's some evidence that it should be done more frequently than every two years. Now, this is interesting. I've seen it um, rolled out in some countries where a mobile mammography might be used because while the country's ready to invest in doing screening mammography, there aren't enough radiologists and pathologists to support that. So they'll send a, a mobile mammography van out, and yet the readings are done in a centralized place. Any abnormalities are worked up at a centralized place. So we're ready to go out and do the screening, but we don't really have the pathologists and radiologists to be broad. They need to still be centralized. And then the maximal level is annual mammography that's being offered to women over 40, and uh, other imaging potentially in high-risk groups such as the patients with a strong family history for breast cancer and implementing screening MRI here. Um, the risk-benefit profile at any of these levels is going to, to weigh out differently, and as we've discussed uh, earlier, Felicia brought it up, in a lot of these countries with low and uh, middle resources, uh, women are being diagnosed at a very young age. So these cut points for 40 or 50 are really pretty artificial and are predominantly based on kind of more Western or higher resource level countries in terms of the age that breast cancer is being diagnosed at. Thank you so much. I want to turn to you, Meta, and let's talk about uh, high resource countries. Right. And that is what are the implications of your studies for the current guidelines in the United States, which are more frequent than certainly the, U the World Health Guidelines. Well, first of all, I, ne I need to, um, I would like to comment on something you said, if that's yes, okay. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> because you said that um, the incidence mortality ratio uh, was different in the developing world than in the, let's call it, Western world. And um, you say that is due to uh, maybe mortality, but it could be due to incidence. Mm -hmm. And it could be due to the fact that we have higher risk in the, in the mm -hmm. Western world but it could also be due to the fact that screening uh, over-detects cancer, mm -hmm. which is one of the harms of screening that we cannot forget in this discussions. Mm -hmm. There are benefits and there are harms. Mm -hmm. And I think we might come back to that. I just needed to point mm -hmm. that out, that it's not as simple to look at the incidence mortality ratio and compare mm -hmm. that. You need to, and, and only to focus on the mortality, it could be something mm -hmm. about the incidence as well. Mm -hmm. So that we're artificially uh, heightening the in incidence in the Western world due to mm -hmm. overdiagnosis. Yes, let's talk more about the harms. Okay. Um, based, uh, based on um, the U.S. population and the 10% mortality reduction that we found in, in our study, it was an editorial that you were talking about uh, in New England Journal of uh, Medicine that summed up the, the benefits and harmed, harms of screening. And the benefits was that you uh, had to screen 2,500 women aged 50 for 10 years to avoid one breast cancer death. Mm -hmm. The harms is that you uh, have 10,000 women, out of those 2,500, 1,000 women who will experience a false positive test. That is either you have to redo your mammogram, you have extra ultrasound, or you have to do a biopsy, or mm -hmm. even an excision biopsy, which is really surgery. And then five to 15 women uh, out of those 2,500 are being overdiagnosed. That is, they're treated for breast cancer. And that cancer, if they hadn't uh, attended a screening, that would never bother them. Mm -hmm. So they have 
all the harms of treatment mm -hmm. and none of the benefits. In addition to that, and that was not quoted in the, in the editorial, but you also have false negative findings. Mm -hmm. And based on the Norwegian data, 25 to 30% of all cancers detected in a screening program is detected between screens. Mm -hmm. Interval cancers. Yeah. They're not, they're actually attending screening on a regular basis and 25 to 30% of them have cancer not detected at the screen. And they don't have the benefits of being detected early. Mm -hmm. So that's our, that, that is the mm -hmm. picture how it is. And I think, at least in the Western world and probably all over the world, it's very important to um, inform women mm -hmm. about these consequences, the benefits and the harms and to convey that in a, f in a way mm -hmm. or fashion that they actually understand it. Because a 10% reduction, what does that really mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think that's, that's really the issue. Mm -hmm. And then we can talk about screening intervals. And, and, and based on our study, in Norway, uh, women are screened every second year from 50 to 69 years old. Mm -hmm. So we're uh, following the recommendations from the WHO and we're uh, mm -hmm. also the new task uh, force recommendation um, who recommend women below the age of 50 to be screened on an, let's say, individual-based, mm -hmm. talking to the doctor mm -hmm. basis, and from 50 to 69 every second year, and or 50 to 74 actually, every second year, and, and, and in older women, um, mm -hmm. more on a risk-based factor. But we have to remember that the incidence at least in the in uh, in the Western world is really increasing with age. Mm -hmm. So there's, but that's different in yeah. the developing mm -hmm. world, of course. L let me be, throw out something really provocative. We hear this all the time: catch it early when it's curable. Mm -hmm. And I get the sense in reading some of these studies that that position is uh, is being modified, and that it that maybe as important as when you find a cancer is what kind of cancer it mm -hmm. is and having the technology to be able to say well what kind of cancer is it and what is the makeup of the cells and then how do you target the treatment mm -hmm. for that individual's cancer and how does that change you know th that that understanding of cancer mm -hmm. and the uh, the advances in treatment how does that change in a sense the assessment of mammography screening well, if, if you look at the, the Western world again, you, it seems to be like in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, where they started with the mammography screening, the breast awareness might not have been as high as it is mm -hmm. today. And treatment has definitely changed mm -hmm. uh, over the, that period of time. And it seemed to me that it's, the evidence seems to be that mammography screening plays a less and less role mm -hmm. in reducing mortality in, in, this, in, these counties, uh, in these countries in the Western world. Mm -hmm. And also, I think, um, if you look at, uh, let's say, um, a testicular cancer, you don't screen for that because you cure everybody, so you don't need to screen for it. Mm -hmm. So it is uh, a matter of, of what kind of treatment you can offer mm -hmm. and what kind of individually tra mm -hmm. tailored treatment you can offer the patient. Julie, I'd, lo I'd love to have you jump in here um, to talk a little bit about, you know, catch it early when it's curable, that phrase, and also how do you advise individual women in light of the sort of the changing science of both breast cancer and of screening? I think you, you asked a good question a few minutes ago about the difference between staging, which is the size and whether it's spread to the lymph nodes and beyond, and the biology of the cancer. And it's very clear that there are some very tiny cancers that are just bad biology mm -hmm. and are destined to relapse no matter how early you find them. And we're striving to better understand those cancers and get better treatments. But it's also clear that the stage, which is the size, the lymph node spread and all, is also very important in terms of predicting risk of recurrence. And so earlier detection can impact those. I've had patients who have had very aggressive large cancers for one reason or another. They've ignored, hadn't had health care access, etc. And still years later, it never spreads. It doesn't come back. They're highly curable. Even though it's been there for a long time, it's grown quite large. So we're struggling to understand the biology behind the stage, etc. Um, I'd like to augment the, the, the risk and benefit discussion that we had, and um, clearly the, the most clinically relevant endpoint 
when we're looking at mammography trials or any kind of early detection and screening trials is going to be, are we reducing deaths due mm -hmm. to the disease? But, but I would throw in, and I'm not sure this was, this was properly discussed in our Institute of Medicine report and some of our guidelines, that there are some other benefits besides just reducing deaths. And earlier detection can mm -hmm. reduce in-breast recurrences that mm -hmm. are highly curable but still need more treatment. The smaller the tumor is, the, the better the chance that if you do, for example, breast conservation or lumpectomy, that it won't come back. Um, additionally, if you find a cancer when it's smaller, you have a higher likelihood of being offered, at least in countries that can do it, a lumpectomy mm -hmm. as opposed to a mastectomy, so not needing to lose the entire breast you'll have a higher likelihood if the tumor is earlier stage mm -hmm. of not needing chemotherapy. And I think that's a big benefit. It, it's hard to sort any of that out, the, the mastectomy versus lumpectomy rates, the chemo or not, the radiation or not, in these trials because essentially mm -hmm. death was the main endpoint. But those are big benefits. I know my patients would clearly prefer to not have to undergo more aggressive treatments. Mm -hmm. Additionally, in, in the risks, um, you know, I think we have to be careful about how much weight we put on the different kinds of false positives. Mm -hmm. And um, the need for a biopsy of something that ends up being benign, that can have physical and emotional impact. And each woman's going, woman is going to weigh that differently. But mm -hmm. sometimes a false positive, and a lot of the false positives reported in these studies is they just need to do an extra picture, an extra view. It wasn't quite clear whether it was something you needed to go after and just one additional mammogram would clear it up. And, and so there might be some emotional concern there, but really there's no physical impact or detriment um, to the one extra view. Um, I agree about um, the false negatives um, and the false reassurance about missing a cancer. I've had patients who have said, well, I've had a lump for three months, but I just had had a mammogram and you know, it was negative, so I didn't follow up on my lump. And so there's some false reassurance. Mm -hmm. And then I don't know how to weigh the, the over-detection piece. Um, that is clearly happening, especially with in-situ cancers that never would have progressed. And we clearly have to sort that one out. Mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. Well, let's turn to the, uh, to the world again, to uh, um, low-income and middle-income. Uh, we have a recession. Money is tight. So to improve women's health around the world, where does mammography screening fit in? Both of you. <laughs> let, me, let me jump in and also if I yes. can, I wanted to also comment on yeah. one sure. point, yeah. which I think is, is actually crucial. Why screen if you don't have access mm -hmm. to complete treatment? I have to say that I completely disagree with the idea mm -hmm. that you should not screen or increase awareness if there isn't access to treatment. Mm -hmm. We're here in International Women's Day. Mm -hmm. If we are not telling women and other human beings what diseases they may have, we will never have the push, the demand that we need mm -hmm. to insist on access to treatment. So keeping people out of their own business, which is their health, I have to say that I can't agree with. It's a terrible thing to have to face women and say, there isn't enough money. Mm -hmm. You can't get full treatment. But there's always something we can do. But I think that the solution is not not to tell her. Um, the second is I did want to say something also about the mortality versus incidence ratios. Um, that's, a, that's a ratio. So clearly it's comparing mm -hmm. two things, mortality and incidence. I think what we have to realize here, the bottom line is we have very little data, as Flavia said, for much of the developing world. Mm -hmm. But we are clearly seeing that we have a very different pattern of disease. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for several mm -hmm. possible reasons, we don't know why, and a different set of health systems. And I think that all the evidence from your study is pushing to the idea that many particularly higher middle-income countries would do a good job if they thought about investing in mammography for early detection. That said, um, being also an International Women's Day, there's much that can be done, and Julia suggested mm -hmm. this with the Breast Health Global Initiative yeah. guidelines, we are seeing 60 to 70% of women with breast cancers that will kill them and do kill them. That's why those rates are so high, the mortality to incidence. There's a lot that can be done even where there's no mammography. Mm -hmm. This is about awareness building. This is about training your primary level of care. Mm -hmm. You do not need an oncologist 
to earlier detect the kinds of tumors I see in the field on a daily basis, which are lumps that are larger sometimes even than the other breast. Yeah. We could do a lot better in many ways. But I think the bottom line here is what we're talking about is investing in women, and often in young women, who are in their most productive and reproductive stages of life. And therefore, if we talk about economic crisis, I think we also have to talk about investing in women as a way of pushing ourselves out of longer-term economic crisis. Right, but let's just go back to the screening. That is sort of using a technology like mammography, is that kind of like a uh, technical Trojan horse, in a sense, to mm -hmm. uh, increase awareness of breast cancer and other diseases and get women into health centers and uh, lead to better health care? I, I think that the, some of the discussions were suggesting that the effect that we could have been seeing with mammography is partly how that increases awareness. Mm -hmm. That's not the suggestion that I'm making here for developing countries. Mm -hmm. the, what I am suggesting mm -hmm. is that anti-poverty programs, women in health mm -hmm. programs, mm -hmm. health promoters, nurses at the primary levels and physicians at mm -hmm. the primary level can do a substantially better mm -hmm. job than they're doing today, even if there's no screening mammography available, mm -hmm. to help women to better understand mm -hmm. this disease. And in fact, in doing so, to better understand our own bodies and better advocate mm -hmm. for ourselves within the health sector. Mm -hmm. Breast cancer is just the tip of the iceberg for what women suffer in terms of barriers related to machismo and discrimination. So even where you don't have this, what is supposedly mm -hmm. a Trojan horse, there's a tremendous mm -hmm. amount that can be right. done right. among bringing women forward. Right, right. Well, Flavie, let me talk you, about, yeah. yes, let you me talk tell about you what, uh, what my colleague and friend from Uganda told me today, uh, which is, uh, he's a gynecologist and professor that is an advisor to the president of Uganda, and uh, he's very interested in this topic, but in his hospital, which is a central teaching hospital in Kampala, he cannot offer mammography. So your question is, you know, he cannot offer. What place does he have? But what they are starting to do, which is uh, very, very promising, is that with very limited support, they are trying to educate primary care providers, and especially midwives and uh, lower mm -hmm. level cadre, to speak to women, to uh, educate them, increase their awareness, to use every opportunity that when women have access to healthcare provider that let's not forget that in many parts, for example, of U rural Uganda, women don't access healthcare services every day. They, in fact, they have initiated this program where healthcare providers go to women and they don't talk only about breast cancer. They look at their own health, their reproductive health. They advise women about, for example, what are the choices about their fertility, what are the choices they have once they become pregnant in terms of the care they can have for the delivery for themselves and for their own children. Because women are, in fact, in most part of the world, the primary providers and carers for, mm -hmm. for children themselves. I quite agree, and I would like to, to comment on this point, because he, when in the discussion with him, he, he, the issue of I can't offer mammography and therefore there is no point in me detecting a woman with breast cancer, I cannot offer treatment afterwards. It's reminded him very much of where Uganda was 10 years ago with the discussion around HIV-AIDS treatment. And 10 years ago in Uganda, the scenario was similarly where, okay, we cannot detect HIV-AIDS, we do not have the laboratory, the facilities to do so. Even if we could, in the small project where we are financed by development agency from outside our country, we cannot treat these patients. And now, in the global response to this disease that is being considered a priority through the impact and effort of many uh, schools in the world, and many of the development agencies, my own organization that in fact had an initiative three by five, three million pre people on treatment by 2005, we have millions of HIV-AIDS patients that are actually receiving lifelong treatment. Mm -hmm. So why I would like to say on Women's Day is that we need to have that kind of horizon in countries where currently, unfortunately, Physicians and uh, professors like my colleague Pius Okong cannot offer the treatment, but they have their perspective. 
and uh, from uh, the outside, from the agencies that uh, we are here, and from the university and the school, like the School of Public Health, we need to advocate and prepare policymakers for being able to offer women the care that they deserve and they have the right to. And they have no access to that care because they happen to live in Uganda and not in Norway. Right. Well, so you're calling for really a movement mm -hmm. to um, find the resources in the world mm -hmm. to address the issue. But now I want to go talk about what the issue is. Is it women's health generally, including reproductive health and cancers and heart disease? Is it breast cancer? Or are we talking about, but then we talk about, we're talking about screening mammography. Mm -hmm. So where do those three elements fit in in this call for more resources? The, I think that what we're seeing in the discussion in the Global Task Force and a model mm -hmm. that we've been using more and more is mm -hmm. we're calling the diagonal approach. Mm -hmm. This was originally written about by Jaime Sepulveda, who's now at Gates, and by Julio Frank. The idea that it's either the vertical or the horizontal, mm -hmm. the health system interventions or the disease specific, is now mm -hmm. really very passe. Mm -hmm. We, I think, know that in order to effectively meet the challenge of a disease, be it the prevention, detection, survivorship, mm -hmm. or treatment side, we need to also be investing in strong health systems. And that's not about saying, I'll pick only the women sitting in this clinic who have mm -hmm. breast cancer mm -hmm. and help them. It's about seeing the different diseases. We're also seeing that it's very passe to talk about only neglected communicable diseases. Paul mm -hmm. Farmer said the other day, let's mm -hmm. face it, in developing countries, every disease is neglected. <laughs> That's probably the truth. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also true that the poor yeah. suffer more from all diseases. Mm -hmm. So we need to change the way we think about mm -hmm. that. It's a more complex model. Mm -hmm. It's also one that I think is more ethical and more effective. Mm -hmm. But then returning, say, to the US, uh, breast cancer is very disease specific and we mm -hmm. have uh, many organizations around breast cancer mm -hmm. and um, uh, we, uh, we think of that disease and then also mammography. Mammography is just very precious mm -hmm. uh, for American women mm -hmm. uh, and we've grown up with if you care about your mother make sure she gets her mammogram. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm sort of saying, well what's happening now? You have a global initiative which sounds to me includes much more than mammography. Mm -hmm. But now we're talking about mammography, mammography screening in this country and the technology. And um, so where, where are we going with screening in this country? I just want to make one point um, mm -hmm. to recall in, in our study that we found 10% reduction for those who had both yeah. undergone mammography screening and been treated mm -hmm. by the breast units and specialized doctor doctors and 8% mm -hmm. reduction, almost the same for those who had not undergone mammography screening. Mm -hmm. So I think just to, to back up on the screening point, mm -hmm. the healthcare system, mm -hmm. extremely important and then mm -hmm. when that is in place, we need to discuss screening because mm -hmm. screening is something else than offering mm -hmm. healthcare system. Mm -hmm. However, it could be that uh, greater awareness not mm -hmm. only about breasts, but about your body is a good yeah. thing. But I think the establishment of the, the healthcare system is more important mm -hmm. than talking about screening because it seems that the harms might mm -hmm. outweigh the benefits, or mm -hmm. at least it's a close call. So we, mm -hmm. I think we need to have that in mind mm -hmm. when we discuss, even, even in the developing mm -hmm. uh, countries. Mm -hmm. But in this country, uh, when the task force recommended um, less frequency of mammography, it caused a political firestorm <laughs> and um, agencies rejected it. Mm -hmm. And so can you talk a little bit about w why and what can be, because we as consumers, it's very confusing is all I can say. So I'd like each of you to tackle that. Mm -hmm. um, one thing, I think that Julie was alluding to this yeah. as well. Why did we ever pick round numbers? Mm. The evidence between 40 and 50, 40 mm -hmm. every year versus 50 every two, there's an enormous gap there with mm -hmm. very little evidence. And so it, why didn't we pick 43 or 47, mm -hmm. which might be the ideal number? Mm -hmm. Is it because it's not rounded? Um, mm -hmm. there's, there's a series of issues there. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was diagnosed in, in Mexico, and this is the situation that I can speak to. But I have to say, that I would not have given up the opportunity to have my mammogram at age 41. 
Um, and I think many women who cried out to continue felt that they could manage and want to continue to manage whatever that anxiety might be because we have a fear of this disease that has certainly killed many. Mm -hmm. What um, I think is changing very quickly and perhaps hasn't permeated um, is how effective we hope the treatment mm -hmm. is and can be mm -hmm. when it's personalized and specialized. And I have to say hope because I've gone through mm -hmm. all of the treatment uh, or most of them other than radiation that Julie was alluding to. And we believe and hope that that was very effective. Mm -hmm. This, as you said, Abby, is new. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, now, for women to believe that even if they're detected a little bit later, that treatment that they'll have access to in certain countries mm -hmm. can still change their life, may make them decide that they don't want to go through that much screening. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we permeated with that message yet. We still have the belief, and it's still the case for many, if you don't have access to that treatment, that you're not necessarily going to be that lucky. And mm -hmm. so you are on the side of what Julie suggested, that we still know that if we're detected earlier, mm -hmm. it's better. One last point there is that I cannot speak enough to what it must mean for a woman to be able to avoid 16 rounds of chemo, which is what I had, and a mastectomy. And would I have possibly gone for yet one more mammogram if I had been able to avoid that? Much as I think I learned and we shared and grew as a family, I would have done a lot to have avoided that. Well, I think it's a, you know, you're, uh, we're talking about human beings. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the, one of the issues uh, when we talk about public health mm -hmm. and population guidelines. We're talking mm -hmm. about, you know, huge populations. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when we talk about getting sick, we're talking about individuals and their experience mm -hmm. of the illness. And so I think that's what makes this uh, disease and makes, makes the screening issue so mm -hmm. difficult. Mm -hmm. Because we, when we say screening and mammograms, we think of somebody. And, um, and so then we sort of turn to uh, scientists and you researchers and clinicians to then sort out the evidence and then see where do we fit in that evidence. Let me bring up a, a, one issue before turning it over, which, uh, and that is costs. What about the cost implications of mammography screening? I think Felicia, who is an economist <laughs> among us, is the best person to answer this one. I can try <laughs> to speak to that, Gabby. It's, um, there are very few studies in developing countries. There is one in Mexico that was done by a set of colleagues and close friends, led by Stefano Bertozzi at the National Institute of Public Health. And what that showed by comparing and modeling mm -hmm. mammography at age 40 versus 50 was that both were cost effective. So in fact, mammography beginning at age 40 every year, every two years, or age 48, were all cost effective in the guidelines suggested by WHO and the macro, uh, Commission on Macroeconomics and Health. In fact, age 50 every two years was not cost effective. This was in that study in Mexico. Um, we've done a few other studies, um, but they don't come as close to being cost effectiveness studies. The key here, it goes back to, I think, more than cost effectiveness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you are late detecting, investing a lot in treatment, and you have a one in three chance of five-year survival, your effectiveness drops tremendously. So earlier detection associated with mm -hmm. mammography, but let me stress also not only mammography, mm -hmm. the breast clinical exams, mm -hmm. the awareness, the knowing your own body, the access to treatment, increases effectiveness tremendously because you increase the lifespan of women. Mm -hmm. um, that's really the bottom line, I think, in, in those measurements. Um, I can't speak as much to the U.S. data on cost effectiveness. I would leave that to my colleagues who do more on okay. high-income countries. Well, let's turn it to the audience. I'm sure you have questions. <laughs> We've thrown out a lot of different uh, bits and pieces about mammography screening. How about some questions? Robin. Um, Hi, I'm Robin Herman. I'm, I'm director of the forum, but um, we have some questions from our online audience, so maybe I can start with one of those. Mm -hmm. um, we have uh, a, a question from um, 
Dr. Uh, Enrique Sanchez uh, at the University of Toronto, Canada, uh, and the Institut National de Cancerologie de Mexico. Um, he wants to know uh, if a true national registry system does not exist in Mexico, how can one be sure that breast cancer kills more people than another major public health concern, which is cervical cancer? Mm -hmm. I, I guess, guess that that's you. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much for the question. Um, first, let me say that we need more registries. Yes. Um, we have only a precious few mm -hmm. in particularly the developing world. Every country does not need a full national registry, but we do need more. Mm -hmm. It is true that in Mexico there is no registry. Um, there's only one state in the country, Jalisco, mm -hmm. that has a, a registry that is we're trying to bring up to speed. Um, and in fact, that's a project that we're doing with work here from the Harvard School of Public Health, Harvard Medical School, and the um, National Cancer Institute, mm -hmm. and the Popular Health Insurance Seguro Popular in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Why am I so sure of those numbers? And we've published them um, rather extensively. It's almost the, the signa of the work that we've been doing in um, the NGO that we work with, Tomate Lopecho. It is because they're based on mortality figures, mm -hmm. not on incidents. We've looked at trends in mortality, and I have to say that this is part of the work of a truly excellent epidemiologist, Rafael Lozano, um, over 50 years. What we've seen is actually extremely good news in Mexico on cervical cancer deaths that have dropped from 16 per 100,000 to 8 since the, between the early 90s and 2006. And the breast cancer figures have simply either continued to go up or plateaued at a certain level so that as of 2006, more women die of breast mm -hmm. cancer than of cervical cancer. But there are two parts there. One is what's happening with breast cancer. Mm -hmm. The other is how well we're doing mm -hmm. on um, treating, mm -hmm. early detecting, or in fact detecting mm -hmm. precancerous mm -hmm. cervical mm -hmm. issues where we know that we can save women's lives. There's a real success story in there. I think there's also um, a message, which is when I hear colleagues who argued in Mexico and elsewhere for screening, pap screening, Mm -hmm. in Mexico and they said this will never happen, mm -hmm. they see that graph and say, look, and it did. The yeah. question is, can we do something like that on breasts? So the quick answer is that they're not based on incidents, they're based on mortality figures, mm -hmm. and we do have, I think, a very good mortality series um, mm -hmm. in Mexico. Mm -hmm. Another question. Uh, Lucas from University of Sao Paulo. Uh, I'd like to ask you about um, a more practical question about design. Uh, when we, we talk about uh, delivering uh, mammograms to these women, mm -hmm. so we're going to their communities and asking them to have these mammograms, we will have a, a mobile device that will get the, these mammograms in the, their communities. Uh, how do we think about the size? Like uh, 10 million uh, people in a city like mm -hmm. Sao Paulo, and we're offering like uh, one of this kind of mobile device we will offer uh, in terms of number, how, how do we design this project mm -hmm. they, they, considering that these women uh, have never gone to this kind of exams? Mm -hmm. Who would like to take that? Well, you have yes, come back to one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, uh, I'm not sure that I, I understood your question. Is it that how do you design a research on implementing mammography screening in this in this setting is that what you asked? Well, I, I think I, I honestly think randomized controlled trials is, is the answer here. This it, it is. There's so many questions about mammography screening. Mm -hmm. The field is full of emotions. We have a lot of facts. Ten percent reduction in mortality. We state that the the harms, the overdiagnosis issue, the false positive, the false negative. We need studies that are conducted on a randomized control basis, mm -hmm. again, even though they were conducted for mm -hmm. the screening field. Not very many other mm -hmm. fields of screening for cancer are based on randomized controlled trials, but I think that's the, mm -hmm. that's the way we're heading. We need to go to the randomized controlled trials. It, I, I would agree with that and suggest that we need at least one of those trials mm -hmm. in an upper middle income yeah. country. Um, we may see very different results. Mm -hmm. We may see results similar to yours mm -hmm. in 20 years mm -hmm. in that same country. But mm -hmm. I think the question is a little bit now. But I thought mm -hmm. if I understood correctly, you were also asking the question about how do you implement a program like mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. Am I correct? Um, 
You know, that's, that's not an easy question mm -hmm. to answer. Um, we are working closely with the National Cancer Institute, with mm -hmm. the uh, National Commission for Social Protection and Health in Mexico, in several states, um, to support what's being done <coughs> in terms of screening and, and promoting earlier detection to shore up what's being done mm -hmm. on treatment. Um, part of the answer and the part that I really want to stress with you is that it's not only a supply side issue. Mm -hmm. We have mammography machines in Mexico with technicians to read them that are being underutilized in part because women don't want to go. Mm -hmm. And when I've tried to convince them to go, they say, why would I want to know? Mm -hmm. Because if I find I have breast cancer, my partner will leave me and I can't support the children and I'd rather die of the disease than find out I have it and figure mm -hmm. out how to manage it. Or I've had another woman say, a woman without a breast is ugly and I don't want to be ugly. Mm -hmm. Now, being a woman without a breast, the question is how do we get over those kinds of conceptions, that kind of stigma, and further, how do we prove to women that if you actually are diagnosed, mm -hmm. you have a chance of surviving, a good chance of surviving, so it's worth investing in that. It's mm -hmm. worth investing in the prevention and in your own health. That's something that we often, I think, as women, don't do enough of in general. Mm -hmm. And certainly when we're talking about cancer, we don't do enough of. Um, this, so what I'm getting at is for that screening program, mm -hmm. we need the participation of men. Mm -hmm. We need to understand what women feel in terms of stigma and about their own bodies. We also need to work on the demand side so that a women are pushing to be able to be diagnosed early enough if they have these sorts of diseases to get mm -hmm. treatment. But here, here's the question, do you need mammography screening to do that, to overcome stigma, to bring women into a healthcare system, to talk about their bodies? Couldn't you do that with other ways and not have a mammography machine? I think you need For screening, you know, you know, not for diagnosis, but not for screening. I think you need both. Why do you need both? First, because you need to demonstrate that women can survive. I think why our stories are powerful for those of us who are still living with this disease, is when we can stand up and say, we went through the treatment, mm -hmm. but we're still here. You can do it as well. Mm -hmm. Now, if I hadn't had my first mammogram until age 50, I don't think, mm -hmm. I'm only 44 now, almost 45, I don't think I would have gotten there. Um, and I might not be here at all. So I don't think it's an either or. That said, mm -hmm. the answer for a lower income country isn't if you don't yeah. have mammography you can't do anything. Mm -hmm. But the reason is because if you have 60 or 70 percent that are today being diagnosed in stage 3, 4, these enormous superin cancers, a midwife mm -hmm. with basic information can earlier diagnose and give that woman a much better chance, perhaps not at surviving the cancer, mm -hmm. not at cure necessarily, but at a much longer life expectancy with healthy life with the disease. Let me say that for many of them, young women, again, in developing countries, an extra five years with your children. Couldn't you do that, uh, though, with clinical exams, training programs? I'm, I'm trying. That's, so I we're talking about, about screening. Well, other, what do you think? Do you need mammography screening? And Julie, I'd mm -hmm. like you to. I don't know, because I'm not an expert in the developing world. But I know, why would you want to implement a program if you could do a randomized controlled trial. Well, you will get the thing. answers. By mm -hmm. implementing a program, you might not get the answers. You might not have any research to mm -hmm. back you up on your views. Right now, I, I think we, I, I need to stress this again because I think the mammography screening field is a lot about beliefs, emotions. Mm -hmm. We need to look more into the research, the science behind it. Mm -hmm. And women need to be informed of the science behind it and what that conveys, what does this mean, and then they can certainly decide whether or not they should go to screening. And we're talking about screening mammography, not mammography, to stress that again. Right. Mm -hmm. So right. I, I don't, I don't, I see, I think we have to back up. Mm -hmm. We have to back up and say, okay, let's start over. Let's start in the developing countries to do the, the research, to mm -hmm. do the randomized controlled trials. It's feasible. It's possible. And Julie, that could heighten the awareness and, and get this effects that you were talking about. But I'm not an expert in how to get the women to attend and to, to be part of a trial. Mm -hmm. I, so I'm going to be, I don't know that, but I think we have to stick to the science here. Julie, I'm, uh, please jump in here. 
So I guess I'm I'm just a, a little bit confused about what kind of randomized trials we're talking about. Um, screening mammography saves lives, and multiple studies have shown that. I think what we're getting at here is at what point is a country or a population ready to take this mm. step? We can't yeah. do it in an isolated way. We have to go through the enhanced levels. We need to educate the, the healthcare providers, and we need to do good clinical breast exam, and we need to be able to do the biopsies and diagnose breast cancer before we jump in with routine screening programs. So um, while I think we need some pilot projects and I think we need more understanding of how to implement and sustain a screening, uh, mammography screening project in some of these countries, I don't think we need more randomized trials looking at does mammography save lives. I, I think we've also got to package this as we've talked about in terms of the whole woman or the whole patient and and not take mammography in a, out in an isolated way. So the healthcare providers, the promotors, whoever's you know discussing all of these issues with the, the given woman needs to be talking about risk reduction as well. I mean, I would far prefer to prevent a breast cancer than diagnose a breast cancer. And so some of these countries have very different risks for, for yeah. cancer in general than we do in the United States, but mm -hmm. discussions about diet, body weight, physical activity, hormone replacement therapy, some are irrelevant mm -hmm. in some of these developing countries, but they need to be part of the whole education uh, of the woman when you're talking with her about offering a mammogram at the mm -hmm. same time. And the, we're talking about individualization of risk reduction and screening and care across the board and that's really hard to you know look at with a big you know global health picture we, we we're talking about how we need to individualize even more and we can't do one size fits all mm -hmm. for any country much less any given woman so uh, abigail maybe one conclusion of our debate is that in fact we don't have a world global generic woman that we are discussing <laughs> in International Women's Day. Right. We do have a very different uh, level of risk, as uh, Julia said. For example, the fertility rates in different population of women across the world varies tremendously. Yeah. Yeah. My own country, Italy, is one of the lowest fertility rates. We are below replacement level. We still have countries where women have more than six children during their own mm -hmm. reproductive years. Then, for example, whether women breastfeed or not, all the, and the other risk factor that Julie mentioned, all of these across the population varies tremendously. Then when we then look at how women are aging and how long they survive, what their life expectancy is, and then we need to match that with the kind of healthcare system and level of ability that that system has to provide care for women. So we do not have a solution that fits every single country and that fits every single woman. But uh, what we are trying to convey here in this debate is that when country makes the decisions, they have to make those decisions based on the level of data that they have and that WGO mm -hmm. we try to bring mm -hmm. data from different countries so that countries like Brazil, for example, where they do not have data, maybe they can look at countries that have similar epidemiological profile and similar level of uh, healthcare system. And also we are arguing that it's important to invest on the knowledge and on the, on the research and on the data that underpin those decisions. Yes, yes. I think, uh, is there another question? Do we have? Well, I think this, uh, yes, there's another question. It's back, back to the online audience. Um, yeah. We have uh, two online uh, viewers who are, are asking about primary prevention. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Maynard Clark, who actually works here at the school, so he must be watching <laughs> somewhere outside this, uh, the studio. He says, um, uh, are we able to compare the health benefits and cost savings or costs? of uh, screening by mammograms versus evidence-based lifestyle correction interventions, including behavioral corrections to reduce the risk of breast cancer. And uh, similarly, um, uh, Carmen Barroso, who's the Regional Director of International Planned Parenthood mm -hmm. Federation, uh, Western Hemisphere region, uh, she's asking, um, if we are talking about cost effectiveness, shouldn't we compare with the cost of primary prevention? Um, as we probably know very little about this, should public policy consider investing more in research yeah. in primary prevention? Who would like to take that? Julie. 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 <laughs> Julie. <laughs> well, 
These questions may have come in before before I uh, made my last statements because it's exactly the point that I'm getting at, which is that we need to incorporate primary prevention mm -hmm. or risk reduction when we're looking at secondary prevention, which is essentially the screening with mammography. Um, I don't know of any study that's randomized to educating about primary prevention versus screening. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't think we should ever do it. I think it makes sense to reduce our risk with respect to the things we can control mm -hmm. as much as possible. A and I think that a lot of, even in the United States, a lot of women and a lot of healthcare providers don't really understand all of the risk factors for breast mm -hmm. cancer. And so we, we need to incorporate that, and then we can look at whether screening does anything on top of it or not, I guess is, is my point. We need more research into what causes breast cancer, but the current estimates by the American Cancer Society are that if we could impact physical activity and body weight and nutrition and alcohol, just those things alone, that we could potentially reduce deaths due to breast cancer by 25 to 30% just from those things. So we, it shouldn't be an either or, it should be, mm -hmm. yes, live a healthy life, do the things you can mm -hmm. to reduce risk, and then on top of that see if more expensive interventions like screening, which have harms as, as well as benefits, are going to impact that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we're sort of uh, coming to kind of a, a consensus here that we're talking about mammography screening, and yet we can't talk about it too much in isolation, that it really is part of uh, an overall strategy to improve women's health. I still think we, uh, mammography screening is such a buzzword for, certainly for Americans, mm -hmm. that, uh, that maybe we do need some more research about what, what, what about mammography screening and what about the harms, what about the costs, how do you, how, and how do you make public policy, mm -hmm. uh, again, um, on the data? Some last words. Very quickly, developing countries and all countries have to set priorities, and that's mm -hmm. what a lot of this is about. One piece of data that is perhaps the piece that most shocked me. It turns out that breast cancer is the number two killer of young women mm -hmm. aged 30 mm -hmm. to 54 in most of the middle-income countries in the world. The number one is actually diabetes in most cases. This means that this is a high priority. Um, I was certainly very surprised mm -hmm. to see that it was so high on the list of mm -hmm. killers of young women. So we definitely agree with you, Abigail, that we are talking about breast cancer in the context of women's health and that we look at it within the spectrum of all the other conditions that affect women. And if you allow me, I also wanted to say that within the World Health Organization, we have a heightened awareness that health of women has been not as important and prioritized by many countries. And in fact, in my own cluster that I lead, we have actually changed the name from family and community health to family women and children health to indicate that we are looking at the health of women starting from when they're born across the life cycle to the next generation. And in that, by doing that, we are hoping that in fact we can advise better countries for illnesses that in the past were considered neglected or not a priority, like for example breast cancer and other type of cancers. Well, I think what's so interesting in what you're saying is that one size doesn't fit all mm -hmm. and really the challenge to the World Health Organization is, is uh, setting priorities mm -hmm. and setting policies for different parts of the population. Mm -hmm. But you, you sort of, it's, uh, you also can't have it, you don't want to tell, you know, a woman in Uganda something totally different mm -hmm. from a woman in Philadelphia mm -hmm. because they're both women. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a real, it's a real challenge. It's a uh, real challenge. I any more, um, any more uh, questions from the audience? Julie? Oh, Julie, I want you to um, also jump in here. <laughs> well, I guess in conclusion, I would say breast cancer, you know, has a lot of interest in the world, and um, I think we can use breast cancer to strengthen treatment mm -hmm. of every other cancer. Mm -hmm. You put in place mm -hmm. the, the treatment end and the diagnosis end, you're helping every other cancer out there. And to step back even further, if we can improve breast cancer, prevention, detection, diagnosis, and treatment 
we're going to strengthen health systems across the board as well. And I, 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 I disagree with you on the randomized controlled trials because I think we, as we can see here, there's a lot of questions we haven't answered yet. What age do we start? Is it a different risk factors in the developing mm -hmm. world, in the Western world? Mm -hmm. Should we start screening earlier? Mm -hmm. What is the benefits? What are the harms? And really, we don't know that yet. And we can't, in, in the Western world, where you have implemented screening on a population basis, you do not have the controls. You don't know what would, what would have happened if you didn't have screening. And of course, you can use examples like you. Mm -hmm. And that's that, as doctors, we do that. But we need to look at a broader perspective. We need to look at the populations. Mm -hmm. So I think that the answer is, why implement a screening program if you can do a well-conducted randomized controlled trials? whatever, you can change the age groups, you could do the in screening intervals, you could do a lot of things within that screening uh, trial instead of implementing a program. Could I just, mm -hmm. I, I think, I, mean, I, I have to say, I mean, it's uh, controversy, right? It's controversy. <laughs> the, but the question is whether or not, you know, one is my anecdote and the other is my evidence. Um, but I think you really hit the nail on the head. The question is, can you say something different mm -hmm. to a woman in Uganda? Is the woman in Uganda worth less mm -hmm. than the woman elsewhere? And what we have to be very careful about, yes. very careful, I think, mm -hmm. is the science is extremely important to guide policy. Mm -hmm. But you cannot ask, I think, a policymaker or a woman to wait until we have a whole series of randomized mm -hmm. control studies in developing countries before we're doing something about mm -hmm. a number two killer of young women. We have a whole series of important ideas mm -hmm. I think we've discussed about what you can do even when you don't have access to mammography. But as Julie said, the evidence is very clear that mammography does save lives. So I think we have to have the science and the randomized controls accompany mm -hmm. what we're going to be thinking about in terms of policy. I also think we have to be very careful and beware of the conclusions that some are saying from the study, which is that it's wonderful that this mm -hmm. is the case in high-income countries. The message is that this can be very effective still in low-income countries. Mm -hmm. That's a possible outcome of the study. But we don't know that. We need to find that out. <laughs> That's my yes. message. I exactly. think this, I mean, I, when I hear all of you talking, there's a real question. We're talking about mammography screening, a technology, mm -hmm. and then we're talking about uh, education, self-awareness, uh, promotion, general health care, um, and all of that is, you know, I don't think there's any debate that that's not a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. And so if you're talking about a, uh, a study, you would compare people who are having the same level of um, prevention and education mm -hmm. and care and one group is getting screening and the other isn't, in a sense, uh, uh, echoing the study that you did, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in the high-income mm -hmm. country. So if, if you have, we, we found that reduction among those not being screened aged 70 to 84 was almost the same as those who were screened aged uh, 50 to 69 that could be the case everywhere. So maybe it's just the way we treat people and the way we organize the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. But you know, we're still left with, do we start at 40? Do we start at 50? Exactly. Do we you know, every we two years? Know. Do we say, no, we just don't do it because we're you know, older or it's not gonna make that much difference because there are other factors going on. And I think this is, you know, certainly public policy has gotta come. I would hope, invite you to come up with some answers because uh, all of us women, we want to know, and all of the men who love us want to know, too. <laughs> I, I think it's a good note to end. I thank you all for coming. This has been a great forum, and we'll continue the discussion. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing the forum.